0: This conversation was recorded live on stage at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, a weekend of challenging, inspiring, and robust discussions with powerful speakers from around the world. Take a seat. Oh, this is going to be fun. Looking forward to this session very much. Looking forward to your participation in this session. Welcome to the Festival of Dangerous Ideas for 2016 in this gorgeous, gorgeous institution. And welcome to Don't Trust the Scientists. There's your provocation for the afternoon. The hashtag, if you'd like to be part of the Twitter conversation is of course, Fodi, F-O-D-I. And if you could put your phones on silent or vibrate, and then you can have an extra good time. My name is Natasha Mitchell. I'm from ABC Radio National. I'm a presenter. I'm often a science journalist as well. And of course, as we know, I feel a bit close. I might move. We can spread out a bit, can't we? (laughs) Science is everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) We'll end up on each other's laps by the time (laughs) this session's over. (laughs) Look, science is everywhere and it is at the heart, of course, of some of the most vexed, and interesting and politicised issues and discussions of our time, so climate change obviously, vaccinations, the obesity epidemic, stem cell research, cancer risk, all that. And I guess you could argue that science and the people who do it, the scientists, have always courted controversy. Uh, and stirred up passions and challenged orthodoxies and created a few orthodoxies along the way too. So this might not be specific to our time, this question that we're going to ask about trust and science, Charles Darwin and his theory of evolution, Copernicus and his model of the universe. But what we want to discuss is what's unique to this era. Does science have a trust problem? What is science? What is trust? And we're going to try and unravel these, uh, you know, gnarly questions here together. So please welcome Tim Flannery, mammologist, paleontologist, conservationist, climate change activist, author of many books including most recently, The Atmosphere of Hope, Searching for Solutions to the Climate Crisis. Alok Jha, uh, science correspondent for the ITV News in the UK, wonderful to have you here in Australia Uh, before that was at The Guardian for a decade. He was a science reporter there. He also hosted their award-winning podcast, Science Weekly. He's the author of, most recently, The Water Book. And he hosted a great series not too long ago for the BBC radio, that is, Saving Science from the Scientists. I highly (laughs) commend it to you. And we will ask today whether science does need saving from the scientists. And Lee Vinsel, co-founder of The Maintainers, The maintainers are a research group who are challenging the innovation fetish, as Lee describes it. We had an hysterical session this morning on that very question and they're focusing instead on maintaining and caring for what we already have. And Lee joins us from New Jersey. He's Assistant Professor of Science at the Stevens Institute of Technology. Welcome. Thank you. And we'll come to you too at some point in the conversation. There will be microphones, there are microphones just up there on either side. So please join us when we bring the house lights up. So folks, does science have a trust problem? Alok.
1: Well, so I think I agree with what you say right at the beginning, science is uh, one of the most important ways of making decisions in a very scientific age that we live in. It's climate change, ageing, all these things require scientific answers, so we need it to be as good as possible. And you know, I've reported science, I've been among scientists for 15, 20 years now, and so I'm a fan, I would say. You know, I, I think it's a great enterprise. But I do think that we put scientists on a pedestal. We don't scrutinise them as members of the public as much, anywhere near as much as we should. Uh, I think that as often as journalists, all we do is go, wow, tell me something amazing about the universe and that's it, we believe them and tell everyone else. We don't really question how they've done something, what their motivations are. Um, And in making the programmes I've made recently and and the writing as well, I want there to be more scepticism from the public, from journalists, from all of us about science. And uh, not necessarily saying that I don't trust science, science, I do trust science. I don't trust individual scientists, but that's not a bad thing. That's Mm. just a a sensible approach to scientific ideas and actually that's how scientists operate within themselves. They don't trust each other, not because they hate each other, (laughs) but simply because you have to test things with evidence. I feel like we should understand that and I feel like that's a really important thing for a scientific age.
0: Yeah, Tim, what do you think about this question? Does science have a trust problem? Because I would have thought that science as a methodology encourages us to distrust to distrust data, to question everything, to question the world, to question perhaps the very enterprise of science at times.
2: Well, Natasha, I mean, I'm a practising scientist and I'm not sure that I always trust myself. (laughs) I I mean, I certainly don't trust my colleagues. Self-doubt. Yes. It's the very essence of science that we, we know that we can't prove anything in science. We can disprove things, however, and the scientific project is all about setting up a hypothesis, so setting up an idea, and then trying to tear it down. And if you're a really good scientist, you'll get to tear down your own idea first before anyone else does. (laughs) I mean, that's just the way it works. So we work on a basis of disproof. And so all scientists, are sceptics, uh, we are always, you know, while we have the resources and availability, able to check people's data. Now, you know, you have to be an expert in a field to check another expert's data, so I'd be useless looking at medical data or whatever, but I can do... If it has anything to do with the evolution of kangaroos or, you know, Australian paleontology in general, right, I'm your man, I can do it. But, um, mm. but it, it, th- that is the nature of the scientific process. And I think that it's rather difficult, Alok, though, for those who are non-experts to be genuinely sceptical. I think it's always good for the public to maintain a a level of scepticism about about these ideas, but it is is very difficult to be genuinely sceptical, unless you're an expert in that that area. And I I think it's, you know, scepticism, it's a luxury. If we have time, uh, we can be sceptical about everything and check everything, but none of us has the time to do that. Mm. And so when I go to my doctor and he says, oh, you've got X, Y and Z, I tend to trust him because, I mean, I don't know. Yes, I'll check with Dr. Google as well, but if it sounds OK, I'll go and buy the medical medicine and do it. <laughs> the great, and the great I think that's Dr. probably a practical way we deal with it, you
0: know. What you're describing there, though, is a very pure... Well, we might come back to that, but... but well, I'll come back to that because yes. you're describing a very pure... ..a sort of pure description of science. And, yes. and the, its actual manifestation is sometimes quite different. Lee, does yeah. science have a trust problem right now, mm. right here?
3: Well, it does in the States, for sure. Um, I think that I would like to kind of muddy this water a little bit. Please do. (laughs) By talking, just thinking sociologically in terms of groups of people, right? So in the States, I I agree that some journalists cover science as if the word of scientists is law or something like that. there's, There's many groups of people who have no faith in science whatsoever. Right And who think that climate change, science, is a massive conspiracy put forward by the UN or whatever. Um, so I think that we, we really have to start drilling down into individual groups, individual people, who they talk to, where they get their facts from. Um, so yeah, I think amongst some groups of people, there's there serious trust issues around science mm. and then... You know, in the States, like most progressives are going to be like, ah, you can trust science.
0: So, in that situation, is distrust directed at science and science becomes though a proxy for other things that Mm -hmm. people are feeling uh, disaffected about, you know, powerful institutions, their own lack of power and Mm -hmm. agency, for example.
3: Yeah. I think that's exactly right. I I always say that, you know, Al Gore made an inconvenient truth, right, this climate science uh, movie that many progressives love. And I think he was the worst possible spokesperson for climate science that you can possibly imagine, right? And the reason is is because conservatives in the United States have hated that man for 20 years at that point, right? Rush Limbaugh called him Al Gore, like he was Igor to Bill Clinton. He was just like a little lackey. And so you have that guy who everyone loathes, like, standing up and talking for this thing that people were unsure about, you know? And so I think you really, when you're thinking about communicating complex ideas, you have to not, this is sad for scientists to hear, you can't just assume that the facts are going to do their own work. You have to think about who's talking, you know, and that gets very complicated. Tim? Could I just jump
2: in here? Look, I think Al Gore had a number of problems, one of which is that his name in Arabic means the penis, so he wasn't in a position <laughs> to put the argument yeah. in, in the middle. I hadn't East. heard that before. <laughs> yeah, <that's true. laughs> Unfortunately, so yes, that's a. Oh well, where you know, you've got no job. hope. At least he did it, you know. And you, I, I, I just have to say that no idea or no concept enters the world in a vacuum. Right, mm-hmm. we have, They're mm-hmm. all packaged in a in a very complex socio-economic network. Um, and our recent election in Australia really highlighted that. You know, there in a year when the Great Barrier Reef was absolutely being devastated by climate change, and you, you couldn't miss it. A blind man could see it, you know, if you lived there. The election that was held this year, while that was happening, voted back climate sceptics from those North Queensland electorates, those areas, right adjacent to the reef. So you think, why was this happening? And I think it was happening for a really simple reason. One is that the old economy is concentrated in this country. The old economy that's under threat from addressing climate change is concentrated in certain areas, particularly places like regional Queensland. And we as Australians have failed to stand together to address this threat. So we've failed to say, Look, we understand change is coming, change is inevitable. People are losing jobs in those regions and their lifestyles are under threat. We need to stand together as a community to make sure that we see a just and equitable transition to the new economy. You know, it came face to face for me when I was a climate commissioner and in central Queensland. I remember being in an audience like this. We did a climate change presentation and a bloke stood up first hand up for questions at question time and said to me, he said, look, thank you for your presentation. I now understand that... um, My livelihood as a farmer was destroyed because of climate change. So he used to be a farmer. The droughts and the floods put him out of business. So I've got a young family, daughters 9 and 11. Said the only job I could find in my area um, was working in a coal mine. Can you tell me, am I doing the right thing? I'm a kid,s Mm. you know? Mm. So that's the reality in those regions. So unless we can stand together as a community and say, we will protect you through this, um, we won't address climate change. We'll continue to get sceptics. In, in the areas where the damage is worst because those communities are going to suffer.
0: Well, the sweet irony is that the word scepticism is so core to science but it's being co-opted by others and now almost scepticism is a, a kind of considered a dirty word.
1: Yeah, you absolutely. Know? By scientists who disagree with the sceptics, that yeah, I In Yeah, I in the, in the In the sort of traditional sense. What, so when you were talking, Tim, about the way that science works, of course we all recognise that as the, as Natasha said, the pure way, but in the real deep down trenches of the, of the laboratory, it's often not like that. It's not about falsifying data, it's not about checking other people's work because there's no incentives to do that. And um, I mean, you speak to any scientist uh, in a very competitive field and you say to them, listen, are you falsifying your hypothesis? They're going to say, no, no, no I'm going to prove that what I've done on thinking is true. Because yeah. I've sort of had an idea, I've got some data and I'm going to collect some more to prove it. because." Otherwise, it's a little bit too philosophical. Uh, and ultimately, I mean, for, for me, uh, just going back to the quality of scientific research, I mean, climate is a sort of topic on its own to discuss for uh, mm. for ages. And uh, the, some of the subjects we, you, you were talking about are more political questions about what you do with your life once, you know, once you uh, agree that climate change is an issue, what you do with it is genuine, uh, up for debate. But in terms of the quality of... All sorts of scientific information, which we take for granted almost in, in this society, a lot of that is driven by um, essentially market forces within science. It's about how much money your government's giving you, so how, how competitive you're being for that research grant, how many publications you're 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 going to publish, uh, which uh, gives you your career. Um, and, and there's a sort of there's a sort of tension between in science, it, all over the world, in every advanced economy, which is following that pure goal of going where the evidence takes you, which is what you should do in science, Mm. versus having a successful career in science, which are two separate things. And I think we, the rest of us, should be made more aware of that, to see that there are motivations there. Not to say that we shouldn't trust the outputs of it, but simply to go, hang on, are we doing everything we can to make sure this things correct?
0: So you've been drilling into the specifics of scientific culture and how it works today in Mm. the 21st Mm. century to reveal all sorts of things that are happening that might give us cause for concern, that might fuel our distrust of the scientific pro- process as it manifests today because of the very market forces that you're describing. So what have you revealed? Well, so,
1: so, some I've mentioned some of the things. So the, the chase for publications. So nowadays we publish more and more scientific research than ever and there are more scientists but the volume actually has increased almost exponentially compared to that. And, you know, some of the scientists you speak to will tell you behind closed doors. Individual scientists haven't got any clever, so they're cleverer <laughs> than they were 50 years ago, but they're publishing much more. And uh, so something's up. And the reason is publications get you tick boxes, which mean that you can get your next research grant. And research grants in all countries are incredibly hard things to get. They, uh, you have to be, uh, submit pages and pages of documentation, tell people what you're going to discover, which I've always found interesting because when you tell people what you're going to discover, isn't that the point of scientific (laughs) research? You don't know what you're going to discover anyway. uh, So so you, you do that, and then, you know, you spend a third of your time doing that rather than actually doing any of the bench work and everything. And then, of course, if that doesn't work, then you have to find money from elsewhere. And so, you know, the business of science, the business of universities, universities in my country certainly forcing their academics to say, look, if you don't get in this much money every single year, your research group's out of here, you know. It's not this beautiful academy anymore of just people discovering things and frolicking through gardens and things and going, wow, Eureka. <laughs> it's nothing like that. It's a business. And universities want reputations. They want students. They want money. Um, and so, you know, it might sound cynical for me to say all these things, but it's absolutely true that it happens. You speak to any scientist mm-hmm. they are under pressure. They, they worry all the time about money. They worry about all sorts of access to research. grants.
0: So, so that is actually having an impact on the very, way in which they interpret their
1: data. So one small impact impact, uh, is instead of waiting say a couple of years uh, to collect lots more data, do lots more analysis of something to work out what uh, the particular truth is of whatever question you're asking, you might as well publish as soon as you can so that you've got something which you can then show to your vice chancellor and say I've published something. And it's, yeah. it, the quality of that thing might be That's absolutely right. rubbish. So, and publish it again and again and again yeah. under
2: different, different titles. And, uh, you know, look, I hear exactly what you're saying <laughs> with that. I really do. But, and, and, you know, you think if in a rational world, what we would do is just have a threshold test for scientists, say, put in your project, if it reaches a threshold, it's OK, and then just draw the numbers out of a lottery and just say, you've got a grant this year, sorry, you other guys didn't, pure chance... Don't need any more paperwork than that. You get on for five
1: years and do what you're going to do. Yeah, good luck trying to get that through system. <laughs> well, the system. Why not? Is, the why thing not is, thing that, uh, The thing is, the interesting thing is, the irony, of course, is the governments now want scientific information because it's so useful. They know that, but... They want it to be what they want it to be. So they want uh, what, the, what we call um, uh, policy-based... Um, they want evidence to fit their policy rather than mm. the other way around. Mm. And they know that science is important they know, and they will fund it for those reasons. They know it's a driver of economic growth um, and so they will fund it. But increasingly you're seeing, you know, in our country, again, uh, instead of there being lots of money for blue skies research, which is proven ultimately to provide lots of really interesting economic benefits eventually, even if it's not immediate, they start directing research. Oh, we're going to do systems biology, we're going, to do, uh, we're going to do environmental science and forget about basic yeah. chemistry or something. So, so they start directing it.
0: Yeah, so that let, and we'll come back to some of the other things that you've dug into, but that means then there's political interest in science, there's business interest in science. Does that act to compromise our trust in the scientific enterprise, vested interests? We've seen it over the decades. The tobacco industry was a, is a good example. The coal industry, the oil industry are using science to serve them their own needs. Mm-hmm. Lee, and I'll pick up with you too.
3: Tim. Yeah, I mean, we certainly have... There's a great book um, by Eric Conway and Naomi Oreskes called Merchants of Doubt, which is about uh, scientists who work for tobacco companies and oil companies to put doubt in whether cigarettes cause cancer or um, uh, climate change is real. But I think, again... Um, often, whether you buy into the results or not, or whether whatever finding you pick up on as a citizen, has more to do with your pre-existing worldview than it necessarily does have something to do with being convinced by those scientists. Mm. You know, so I think that, yes, there, that is an important phenomenon out there, that there are corporate interests putting bad science out into the world. But I think, again, you have to kind of think about how people are interpreting it and you know, what they're buying into.
0: Mm, mm. Tim.
4: Wow. Well, you know,
2: I guess, you know, when I I hear exactly what you're saying, Alok and and, and Lee, I mean, I know that we live in a far from perfect world. But I, I guess at the big level I ask myself, what do we actually want out of this enterprise called science? And what do we as a society want out of it? And, you know, among the things that I can think of that are really important is one, we want a decent, quality of life for the scientists, don't you? You don't want them to be millionaires, but you want them to have some sort of job security, have some sort of job satisfaction, to be a career that's actually worthwhile living, you know? So that's kind of important. Um, Secondly, you hope that you end up with something of an improved world out of it, you know? Maybe better medical treatments, maybe a better understanding of the nature of the world we live in, maybe, you know, some better tools for dealing with climate change and all that sort of stuff. So if you start at a basic level like that and ask yourself, is the current system delivering that? You know, the answer is an absolute resounding no. Mm. So how do you then go back and redesign the system? So how do we make it better? Mm. And, you know, science is very diverse. Those the kind of competitiveness you're talking about are really from the major grants, government grants, and, mm. you know, overly bureaucratic and just a load of bullshit, really. Mm. I think the lottery system would be far better. A lot of money, though. Exactly. Yeah. Huge amount of money, but, you know, not being used optimally to create a better world, mm. you know? Um, but there are a lot of other pots of money that scientists can go to. So if if you we had the lottery and you didn't, your ball didn't come out this year, you'd go to someone else, you'd go to the Wellcome Trust or something, to, you know, get mm. some money to do do something. So I just think that we could make it a far better world. Universities are the big, my big bugbear in this. They don't seem to be asking themselves what they're there for. Um, what their academics are there for. You know, as you said, it's all about index citation indices. It's not... A, it, even teaching doesn't get a look in, whereas yeah. it's so important, I think, to me. It's the core business for universities is teaching, apart from anything else. Mm. So how do we get a better mix in all of that? How do we
3: reward people, give them a better career path, you know,
2: uh, yeah, and get I the mean, results we
4: want?
3: I mean, just briefly, this is an amazing thing of this system that we see spreading throughout industrialised nations around science, is that this kind of... The business of science that you're talking about, we, talk, we often focus how, on how it ruins science, but it ends up ruining a lot of other things in universities too. Mm-hmm. You know, like when you start thinking about when, when the, the professors are so focused on getting the next grant that they're not putting any energy into teaching. It's like we, somehow we've like really ended up with a terrible system. Right? That has damaged <laughs> lots of things. Say what you think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
1: but but just, just to wind up on that, you're absolutely right, Tim, and uh, Lee, actually, that this is what we should think. The idea of having a, a decent career is not a bad thing, of course. Mm. But it, it, when you become a scientist, when, you're, when, when scientists are talked about, it's all about this search for truth, this search for mm. understanding of the universe. And, and then th- their careers, their lives—it's just to hell with that. It's, mm-hmm. it's like it's like becoming a sort of uh, um, uh, an artist or something. Everything is everything is, is sacrificed on that on that on that treadmill, on that altar, which I think you're right—it shouldn't be. And at the worst, what it does is slow down things. It wastes a bit, it wastes money or whatever it does. Uh, you know, uh, so at, at the best rather, at the worst, you get incorrect results, you get misunderstandings that persist for decades, which could lead to deaths or whatever else. There's plenty of examples.
0: So, look, you've interviewed people, scientists who have committed fraud, you know, and the data is there. Scientific fraud, scientific misconduct is on the the rise. Whether or not that's because we're just picking it up more, there's more scrutiny now, there's Mm -hmm. more awareness of the issue, but you've spoken to scientists who have, conducted fraud or misconduct made up data altogether, totally fabricated data. Right.
1: I mean, we must be clear, fraud, outright fraud, which is making up data, which is, you know, anathema to science and scientists, I mean, it's it's rare, but it's there. It's it's a very rare thing, so I don't want this to become a thing where you think loads of people are at it. But it's definitely there and lots of cases have been discovered and we're finding more of them. So science Um,
0: often says, well, they're just
1: rogues. They're rogues, They're not
0: emblematic of a a broader cultural malaise. You suggest
5: otherwise. Well,
1: what what it shows you is how hard they are to pick up, right? uh, You speak to anyone about this, they know it's on the rise, but actually it's very, very hard to pick fraud up because actually science is very easy to defraud. It's really ridiculously easy. Talk about self-correction, you know, someone can check your results if they want to. Actually, it's quite hard because if you just keep your results to yourself, no one can check that. Uh, If you peer review is this method of sending stuff out to your colleagues before it gets published, but they can't really pick anything up unless they're absolute experts in the field. And generally speaking, those people are busy, so they'll do a quick read of something Stuff gets through peer review all the time and scientists will tell you that. Um, and so one particular fraudster that I spoke to, um, a psychologist in, in Holland, he made up um, dozens and dozens of, uh, of papers. In st- at the beginning, he just massaged some of the data. Then he started just to make up the numbers. And, and in the end, he found it easier to do that than to do actual experiments himself. And, and he eventually, his, he was found out by some of his students who whistleblowed uh, against him. And he, uh, it, it was, took a long time for him to be discovered because people trust each other a lot. In science, mm. no, you can't possibly do that. that. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and he obviously shouldn't have been. He came clean in the end and lost his PhD. And um, he said, and I asked him, well, why did he... How was it easy? And he said, because no one checked. No one checked. It was easy for me to do this for a decade. It was easy. Mm. No one checked anything I did. And actually, the only way he was discovered in the end was because of a very clever uh, um, scientist, uh, a statistician, actually, who went through his numbers and found they weren't properly random in the way that they should have been because humans, there's always a fingerprint. If you try and do random numbers, if you try and do things, it was just a bit too perfect, his Mm. data. Mm. And so they found out. And so, uh, and he kind of came clean with it. But basically his message was, it's really easy to cheat. And if you think about a clinical trial, uh, thousands of people over 10 years, you could make numbers up in that. And and how how is anyone going to check?
0: Well, there's even been cases of clinical trials that have been totally made up.
1: Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Hundreds and hundreds of
0: thousands of people Mm -hmm. a data set, and they are
1: published. Medical Mm -hmm. medical treatments are based on those trials. People given drugs based on those trials. There was one case uh, in the states a few uh, about a decade ago where um, a a guy decided that you could test the uh, efficacy of a drug using a particular DNA array, and people started using it. He uh, the NIH gave money for trials. People who had cancer of the lung and various other things were given these drugs. Then he found out, they found out that this test didn't even mm. exist. Mm. He'd made up everything. People died
2: as mm. a result of that. Mm. Do You know, that, that answer the man gave you though for the fraud mm. wasn't the complete truth because he said to you that I did it because no one was checking. But the motive behind um, yeah. it is still He unanswered. wants to become a professor.
1: He wants so a okay. job. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly.
2: So mm. it was that. It was but, money. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. OK. I mean, he didn't become rich as a result of it, he no. wanted to just have a nice career. He, he was a bit lazy, maybe. Lazy, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm, exactly. Mm.
0: But, but, you know, he's painted as a rogue, uh, you know, just a, yes. an outlier. And an interestingly, outlier.
1: what he said, mm. also, and people don't really listen to much of what he says at all, but he said, people say I'm a monster, it's much easier to call me a monster, he said, than to admit there's a systemic failure in science to pick up people like me. But, you know, in the banking system is full of people like this, you know, yeah. as well, I mean. <laughs> yeah.
3: I mean, uh, Let's talk about finance for a couple of yeah, minutes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah Tim,
0: exactly. I mean, do stories like that make you quake in your boots?
2: Well, they don't make me quake in my boots, but they do make me aware. I and, mean, you know, and in my own field, we see this stuff all the time. in you know, a Charles Dawson's Piltdown Fraud. It was a century before it was definitively shown to be a fraud. Remind people
0: what that was. That
2: was a a man called Charles Dawson who claimed to have discovered a precursor to the human species in Britain. And the the reason it was done was that in the early 20th century, there was a huge amount of nationalistic feeling around having, you know, the birthplace of humanity or the birthplace of uh, ceramics or whatever, you know. And, And Dawson, presumably driven by some misguided form of nationalism, took a, an a orangutan's jaw, modified it and then claimed to have dug it up from a place called Piltdown in England. Mm. And uh, was, it was a suspicion was cast in the 1950s with radiocarbon dating which showed that the bits and pieces of the it animal weren't quite decades. right. It took decades. It's taken till this year. It was definitively proved, disproved this year. So for a century, yeah. that we, people, you know, suspected there was a fraud but <laughs> couldn't disprove it. So these things are, they're, they're long-lived and persistent mm. and very dangerous. Yeah. But um, the
0: thing about yeah. that is that that, that would have been written up in the literature. Generations of scientific papers were kind of skewed around that particular finding. And and even worse. people off down rabbit holes and.
2: When people started finding real fossils that didn't, weren't consistent with what the Piltdown fraud was showing, they were (laughs) doubted because, you know, it's kind of like, you know, how could this be? It's not, you know.
0: You can't compete with fraud, can you? You can't can't compete with fraud. What about, what about the role of us and our individual values? I mean, I look at the anti-vax vaccination just debate so to speak, we could argue that we could debate the debate. (laughs) But it's such tricky terrain because often what informs people's uh, questioning of science are their own values, their own life experiences, their own lived experience, their own, well that's a form of expertise of sort. And how do we, and that can then fuel distrust in science. So, but, and and people dismiss that as, well, they're just irrational, um, it's anecdotal, they're, they're, you know, rubbish, it's rubbish. So, you know, that's just discounting their whole lived experience. So, how how does that dynamic fuel the concerns about trust and science, do you think? Mm. Lee? Oof. Or whoever wants to weigh in. <laughs> can, can I just say,
1: actually, that, <laughs> Lee's kind of already addressed this, this, this is the, the this, this is, there is science, as in the scientific understanding of uh, no, scientific knowledge, which is he, here's how something works as, as far as we can understand it, um, using all the pure methods that uh, Tim's talked about, and you know that works. That really does work. It shows you whether a vaccine works, or it shows you whether climate change is happening. All these things. Mm. Then that's that's the sort of the aesthetic form of science, and then there's the interpretations of that, which the rest of us have to use. Now, many of us are, if you're rationally minded, and you. Uh, un- how, trust lots of scientists around you, and you've seen lots of it, uh, seen how it all works, then you think, right, OK, that's sensible, but we b- apply that value judgment to it. Whereas people who maybe haven't had so much exposure to science or, or have their own particular experiences, which are very valid real life experiences, science for them is just another way of, another little element of information in how they construct their world. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's incredibly, it, 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 there's no reason why they should be persuaded by science.
0: But on the other hand, Elok, the next argument then that's made is well if you only educate people about science they'll they'll come over to the cause and that can further entrench people's you know frustration and alienation from the scientific process,
1: can't it? Well, we we, yeah, we hear this all the time, right? Um, as journalists, if you report science at all and uh, you speak to scientists, they, that's constantly what you get from scientists. It's like, if only they knew what we mm. know, then everyone would just fall into line. What that forgets is that people don't think scientifically. Scientific thinking is a very yeah. trained Absolutely. thing. You, you train yourself to become a scientist over many, many, many years. It's very counterintuitive. It doesn't make obvious sense it's not this obvious thing at all and so scientists will forget that they've had these years of training to get to the point where they are the rest of us haven't
3: this I think is, that's this true to go back to inconvenient truth for a second mm. right i mean just think about what that would that might look like as a movie if you made it to be broadly appealing to audiences who are not already with you
0: rather than a PowerPoint presentation that then became a movie.
3: That's talked about, mm. who else would be in front of that PowerPoint presentation? Mm. You would at least want it to be bipartisan, right? So in a world it's, where it's already kind of partisan, yeah, you'd want it Republican up there. And then given that a lot of people in the United States, the person they listen to the most is their minister, mm you might want, like, an evangelical preacher up there with you, right? <laughs> and, and, and so then you really have to start thinking of not just about facts yeah. but, but about who mm. people listen to. It, uh, it's persuasion. a much more humanising uh, vision.
1: I've said this before, but, you know, um, Cicero understood rhetoric, right? Rhetoric is about persuasion. It's about telling, persuading someone um, how to how, go with you. Politics mm. is all about rhetoric, of course, mm. and politicians understand this. Um, And in the the classic definitions of rhetoric, you have three parts. You've got the logical part, the rational part, which is information, you've got the trust part, how much do you, trust someone's reputation as speaking. And the third part is emotions. If you can get someone on emotion and trust, the facts can be completely wrong. Oh man, but if you them. read
0: the latest neuroscience of emotion, you'll know and uh, you know, emotion and rationality, they're all tied up of in the course same they are. circuitry. And you know, and this is
1: this is several thousand years old I'm talking about. Yeah, but <laughs> simply saying that emotion, and trust are an incredibly important part of persuading somebody, facts themselves can't do that. And I think so often scientists, and I include myself as someone who thinks that science is a good thing, we forget that people bring emotions and things. And if you don't emotionally engage someone about something, they won't believe you, whether it's true or not, actually.
0: Yeah. But digging my heels in a little bit further, you're talking about persuasion. Yeah. And some people will say, well, no, I don't want to be persuaded. I'm an agent in this conversation. Um, you know, respect my, my humanity and my lived experience. And so you would have had lots of these sorts of conversations around the climate change absolutely, debate.
2: Absolutely. But, but there's a more fundamental point that, that Alok brought up earlier as well, which is that scientists are trained to think scientifically over a number of years. It's a counterintuitive way of thinking. It's something nobody really underst- outside science naturally does. Um, and it, it is explicitly about getting emotion out of it and getting persuasion out of it, which is why scientists are such appalling writers. Yeah. I mean, they are, they, they, the writing that they do, it cannot be emotional, it cannot use beautiful language to convince someone. The facts are the only things that can convince someone. So you use this, archa- this jargon, very arcane jargon, to put concisely your point and data to your colleagues, which is utterly uh, uh, in, incomprehensible to anyone outside a very, very narrow field. Yeah. Um, The whole thing, people misunderstand what science is about. Does it also, though,
0: betray the humanity of the scientists? I mean, many of the great critiques from your field, for example, of the scientific process are about saying, well, no, hang on. Scientists look at their data with a very particular gaze. They ask questions with a very particular gaze or through a particular lens. That's informed by their social experiences and their education. All sorts of things shape. The scientific process.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, I th- think the more radical way of like attacking what you just said is to say like scientists are just moved by a different kind of rhetoric. Like they love terrible writing for some reason, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. So <laughs> if you don't write terribly and put everything in the passive voice for your colleagues, yeah, like yeah. they're not going to look. People at don't it. believe you actually well, understand. They, they don't <laughs> want to be seduced by beautiful writing. They want to be seduced by. The but f- they're seduced sort. by bad writing. I think well, that's. Well, the point. <laughs> well, maybe I don't know. That's. A good idea. <laughs> It's <laughs> twist on the <laughs> argument i hadn't hadn't thought about, that, but but well I think let me push a little bit further. Yeah. I think that this is this whole trust thing, which has been in academia for a while, is to say that we're all working on trust more or less. The scientists are working on trust too. I mean, there are places where they're doing experiments we hope <laughs> yeah, well, right or, yeah. or like looking at data we hope and, and really trying to figure things out, but there's a lot of even within the system itself, these people are you know, trusting each other.
2: Yeah. I mean, look, and it depends on what sort of science. I mean, in my sort of science, I can go and look at a specimen and that mm-hmm. is the definitive reference point for any debate or discussion mm-hmm. on something. If you're dealing with astrophysics or something, you can't necessarily look at a specimen or, you know, quantum mechanics. As long as it's not Obviously. a
0: fraudulent specimen that's, well, that's been. Well, that's, uh, right. <laughs> that's right, exactly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> which uh, has been
2: the case. But just training scientists that way, you know, is so difficult. I remember when I was teaching at Macquarie University, first year I just asked the s- students, who thinks science is a search for truth? Almost every hand in the room would go up. And I knew I had an enormous job. It would take me all year mm. simply to convince those mm. kids that it wasn't. And it's so dist- distressing for them because the dignity of science seems to go out of the window. You know, the, the, the wonderful enterprise they thought they were embarking on actually isn't as they thought it. So it's that... that Teaching people to be a scientist is a difficult and, and rather horrible process, actually. Just
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> before I come to all of you to join us in this conversation, we'll have the room lights up in a tick. Um, do we expect too much of science now? In the in the public sphere, we expect scientists to stand by their data, to nail nail information, a, a conclusion to the post, and it will never. Move, And yet, and so when data gets revisited and conclusions get redrawn, what happens in the public arena is the entire enterprise of science comes into question rather than a collective understanding that actually that reversioning, revisiting of data, redrawing conclusions is the very practice of science Mm. and, you know, politicians, they expect scientific facts to be nailed to the post for a moment in time and that's it. That's the truth forevermore. So is that, are we expecting too much of science?
2: Fundamental misunderstanding. Science is a sort search for falsehood. It's a search to Mm. disprove hypotheses, right? Mm. So no hypothesis arguably is going to stand forever. So it's not that sort of enterprise.
3: Mm. Yeah, I, I think that this is, a lot of times we hear scientists say if only people understood better they'd be with us. But I think that really the citizens need to be better trained to understand just how science works Mm. and to kind of bring it back Mm. down to ground. I don't think that that makes you skeptical about climate science findings necessarily. Mm. But I do think that that you are not surprised and upset and putting doubt in science per se if you understand how it kind of works at a lower level. And that might mean like putting more history of science curricula into high school or whatever. I mean, we can imagine lots of ways to have a better understanding of the institution itself.
1: I think that that's, that's, that's the, one of the most important things that can possibly come out of these, of these sorts of discussions is if people understood not the scientific facts but how you come to a scientific idea, that will help in all sorts of ways. Not only in assessing when things change, because they do, um, but also, you know, in, in if someone tells you something, whether you believe that person or not and what you do with that information. Uh, And ultimately, yes, your question was whether we expect too much of science. We really do actually expect too much of science. But I think that's partly the fault of scientists too who um, for many, many years now uh, have because of, the, again, the pressure of trying to get funding, the pressure of building careers, et cetera, have been incentivized to be much more factual and kind of we mm. are mm. truthful about this. Trust us, we will build your economy. Give us money and we'll give you another technology. Yep. That's happened. That's definitely happened. Mm. And um, it's, it's, this fault, it's a false incentive. And uh, maybe some scientists think it's a great thing. But I'm not sure that it's a great thing for science or for the rest of us, ultimately. But what's the alternative? The alternative is basically you're expecting to, you're expecting politicians to give scientists loads of money and just say do what you want with it and we hope you'll come up with something useful. In fact, that would be the best thing to do in many respects. (laughs) But you can't sell that to the public when they don't understand how science works.
0: Yeah. I mean some people think that we're at a real crisis point with science now because of this culture of perverse incentives to publish, to get money, yeah. to do novel yeah. studies rather than replicate existing mm-hmm. studies. We may
1: be too far and I think it's, re- it's going to be a really hard sell to swing it around for members mm. of the public to say in a time of crisis when there's money cu- being cut everywhere for everything, we must protect this bunch of, bunch of monks who want to go out and discover the truth about stars. In fact, that's probably the best thing to do with your money actually. <laughs>
0: Tim, you're looking a bit melancholy there. Um, well, <laughs>
2: I, I just wonder where all the money's gone. I, don't, yeah. I, I mean, seem wealthier <laughs> no. than ever, and no. yet there's no money for the fundamentals. I don't know. It's, it's a strange, strange world we live in. So, um, yeah. I think we, you know, I, 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 yeah, I do think that the issue of trust, and just to return to that one, I mean, trust is really. It's, it's a shortcut for saving time. None of us can investigate everything mm. that we, we want to investigate in the world. We, can, we can't be sceptical about everything. We have to trust some things, you know. And the scientific method is about as good as a mechanism that you can get for giving you something which is trustworthy. It's not going to be the truth, but it's trustworthy. And we know it actually works. It does deliver things you know, to our lives that are really, really important in terms of improving the quality of our lives. So as as, as you say, it, 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 it's a great thing to be investing in and I do think we should Im- be investing in it just as an enterprise as such, mm. not as trying to, you know, uh, deal with it sexually because that just opens the door to corruption, malpractice and everything else. Mm. And well some, I, something like a lottery system, I'm great familiar. And it could
0: be argued that it's not just about us as humans either. As science mm-hmm. is about understanding the the magnificent complexity of the world in which we occupy and other species and, you know, yeah. we are not the only beings on this planet or but in this, this is, universe, you know, mm-hmm. this necessarily. This is where
3: this <laughs> panel connects to the, the earlier one we did on innovation is that really so much of what this kind of research machine that you're talking about, a lot is focused on commer- commercializable science. Mm-hmm. This is stuff that's supposed to generate economic growth. Right. And so there's a, it's, it's a really a very businessy... Model of science, and for that reason, I think there's not this drive to look at fundamentals or to look at wonder. I mean, what happened to wonder? Yeah, that's not why we're doing this anymore. Um, but but I think that we're also just neglecting a lot of fundamentals. We're regret, neglecting reproduction, and there's so much we're not doing because it's so focused on creating the new gadget or the new nanoparticle that's going to... Yeah, actually, yeah.
1: in very pure areas of science, like, let's say, fundamental particle physics, which, inexplicably to me, and I'm a physicist, so I, I'm quite pleased about this, people seem fascinated by it, even if right. they yeah, don't yeah. understand anything about it. And it's completely useless as knowledge right now anyway, let's be honest. Uh, you know, what's the <laughs> point of a Higgs boson? Yeah. No, no point whatsoever. <laughs> but but um, I always th- find it disappointing. I, I, my heart sinks a little bit. I love that stuff, and loads of people love it. And I, you know, I'm know i happy that my money's being spent on it. But what I find, I, my heart always sinks a little bit when you hear someone uh, who's a PhD student uh, or a professor working on Large Hadron Collider say to you, you know, it's really useful because you've got better microwaves as a result of this, or we've got a better scanner. Right. Of course you have. Of course you have. You're incredibly clever people that's come up with all sorts of things, and be, the return of investment on that thing is enormous, just purely commercially. But can we have a conversation not about that? Even the fundamental stuff, yeah. scientists have been trained to tell you it's useful commercially yeah. somehow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Apollo missions, what do they always say? Four dollars $4 back for every dollar they spent. Sure, but we got to the moon, (laughs) that's even better.
0: (laughs) That's right. Let's come to you for questions. Mike's on, if we can have the house lights up, and there's a microphone on either side. So get there, cue, part the waves, and uh, join us in this conversation. Yes, number two, straight Uh, off the rank.
4: It's very sad when you say that the purity of science is sometimes sabotaged by political interests and vested interests uh, going uh, out there. Um, How do you motivate? a young person to take on a scientific career to try and make the world a better place, when it seems that that person would make more impact by joining a lobby group?
5: Hmm.
0: hmm. Good question.
2: Well. I, yeah, Over look, to you. I would just start by, you know, making sure that we offer them a decent career path, right, for, uh, to be able to lead a satisfying life which I think that at the moment is not really the case in a lot of science. It's intensely competitive. People work ridiculous hours. Um, they're not doing necessarily what they'd like to be doing. They're doing what they're being paid to be doing. Um, so addressing these fundamental issues that you raised Alok, are just, to me, absolutely
3: central to encouraging young people we back see, we into s- the profession. We see a really sick ecology developed around this in the States where like, especially around medical research and hospitals, um, Someone will be funded maybe 20 or 30% by the hospital that they work for, and all the rest needs to be supported by money coming in from outside. All right, so if you do not bring in grants from the federal government, you're not getting paid, you, know, you don't have benefits. And so that it per- creates really perverse incentives Right, So I, I totally agree with you that you do want to have a system that's kind of healthy when it comes to supporting people and things like that.
1: Can I just add a small point? I don't think there's anything wrong with lo- working for a lobby group. It's, it's often, that's a good thing to do if you want political change. It's a great thing also if those people in the lobby groups have got some sort of scientific background. In fact, I think that scientific degrees and scientific training should be much, a much bigger part of general society. Not all of them should become scientists. Yeah. You should have more science... People in journalism, in arts, in in lobby groups, politicians. It'd be great to have that mm. thinking, mm-hmm. even if you don't are not an expert in something. And in fact, mm-hmm. I think we've got too many scientists, probably.
0: Well, the reality yeah. in Australia is there there is an oversupply of graduates. Yeah, so <laughs> I think those in the those professions.
5: Areas often,
1: I mean, when I was when I was doing a science degree, and I said I wanted to become a journalist, people would look <laughs> really weirdly. <laughs> Probably, probably for the right reasons, but anyway. <laughs> but, 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 uh, for, for, because they thought, well, why wouldn't you want to go and do a PhD in physics? I was like, I don't want to do a PhD in physics. I want to use my scientific knowledge elsewhere. People look down on you in science for leaving science. I think it was a great thing to leave science. I wanted to do something. I don't feel like I've left science. It's still there. I can always understand it and read it. I just don't have to sit in a lab. Mm. And I think that's a, we should encourage that. Yes, you can still change the world. Go and do a biology degree, understand the natural world. Then go and become a lobbyist. It's fine. Yeah.
0: Mm. Yes. Uh, more to be said there. Another question.
1: All
6: right. So, I agree with you that emotional arguments convince, but as Alex as said, the facts can be incorrect or correct, completely separate to the rhetoric. So, okay, we need rhetoric to convince, but how do we ensure that the facts are correct? Or, and it's not just the best writer or orator that wins.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. You want me to answer that? Go for it. Well, um, I, th- I think, look, you're going to have people of all stripes with all, their, all sorts of what they call facts getting, putting their stuff out. I'm never going to be able to stop climate deniers, people anti-vaxxers and having their say, and nor should we try because, but, you know, you should have free speech. But what I'm encouraging is people who do have, what I think are the correct facts, to get out there much more. And this is a classic problem with... Uh, Scientists 10, 15 years ago, often, uh, in, in, certainly in the UK, wouldn't speak out too much because speaking to members of the public for scientists was seen as a sort of slightly degrading thing to do because, you know, I'm a professor. What we, why should I speak? Mm. And what that does is create a vacuum which sucks yeah. in speculation. And those people who do want to tell you about the terrible vaccine, whatever else, get all the airtime. time. Whereas if, if you can get some scientists' correct information to up there against those other people, then at least it dilutes the shit <laughs> and do, puts the correct, <laughs> the correct stuff out there, but still, the scientific stuff does need to have nice wrapping and rhetoric and 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 writing around. No, it. But even
0: those scientists who are skilled in in public, mm. you know, packaging things for public, mm. and are skilled at rhetoric, uh, receive death threats.
1: Mm.
0: In the climate change arena, they receive death threats.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, uh, what, what, that's 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 a. That's a I, 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 Not I, just
0: one or two, but many
1: death threats. <laughs> that's, that's a problem. And I don't know what the answer to that one that is, <laughs> to be honest. Right. Um, yeah. right. OK, one example oh, I'll yeah. give you. Uh, when I was uh, reporting, last, in the last decade or so in the UK, there's a huge amount of problem around people using animals for research, uh, in research of any sort. And in the 2005-2006 time, I reported a lot on this, there were groups of people who'd go around flinging death threats. at so any psychologist, biologist using rats, mice, anything. And people got injured, some people even, you know, no, no one was killed thankfully. But um, that became a police and order problem and when the police took that seriously, that went away after a few years. So that's how you deal with those things. Yeah. There's nothing the scientists can do Although about
0: Although I that. thought that was that, and I followed that all with great interest and, and thought that there was a prime example of it, like climate change and vaccination, where, you need to be engaging community concerns about animal Constantly. experimentation. It's Constantly. absolutely vital. You make vital. yourself
1: available. You humble yourself in front of your. It cloud. doesn't
0: happen, though. It doesn't happen. In fact, you know, you and I would have had this experience. Scientists don't want that stuff on tape or on camera. <laughs> they they are really concerned about it, and frankly, they need to be engaging mm. on those issues, you know, around animal ethics and. Experimentation.
3: Yeah, and I, I mean, not only do they need to be out there, but again, they need to be out there to different audiences, right? I mean, how many Trump supporters in rural West Virginia have met an, a scientist, an actual practicing scientist? And that's as much on the scientists as it is yeah. on the individual. So, I mean, I think it really has to do with people getting out there and not just talking to themselves or the New Yorker or whatever, the Guardian or whatever.
0: Let's grab another question. Sorry, we got caught up with our discussion again. Thanks. Thanks. Um, Full disclosure
6: first. My name's Andrea Leong and I'm a member of the Science Party and I was a candidate in the federal election. So we, uh, we think that there aren't too many people being trained as scientists. We think there's not enough support for those who would be scientists. Anyway, onto my question. I had a question about how we should perhaps pitch science towards a perhaps overly credulous majority versus the um, denialist pockets, but you uh, all spoke about that and your thoughts on that. So I have another question that's a bit of a tangent, and that's um, Do you think it's appropriate for governments to set research agendas and have national priority areas, like we have the cooperative research centres, um, or do you think? governments setting these research paths might undermine some of the confidence that the public has mm. as opposed okay. to a lottery system, Jim, that you spoke about. If it passes the bar, mm. it's good enough.
0: Yeah. Then it's a matter of chance as to whether you get funded. Great question. And can I take two in a, a row because we've got mm. quite a bit of interest and we've got 10 minutes left. So let's grab two um, and keep them fairly tight if you can. Thanks. Okay.
5: Thank you. In, in terms of trust, I'd draw a sharp distinction between science and scientists. But what's happened with scientists, to a large extent, is they become very specialised Mm. and arcane. So it's hard to explain to the public in simple ways and thus gain their trust. Mm. And also, when scientists uh, speak out on larger issues, they can get reduced easily. Uh, An example being applying to Tim, as he well knows, when he speaks about climate, he is... Uh, accused of being not a climatologist and therefore untrustworthy. Mm. It's a cheap shot. So, but specialisation has become uh, an important part of science. Is it also a contributor to a lack of trust?
0: Yeah, interesting question. Thank you for it. So let's pick up on that one and then we'll come back to the question earlier. I think
2: so. I I think um, that, you know, the the question of, of trust, if I could go to that one first. Um, we, we are now, we live in a world of specialists. So people will be glaciologists or uh, whatever, you know, they'll be very specialised. And I guess that has opened up a need for people like me who w- used to be called kind of popularisers of science, who would take all of that data, bring it together and pr- create a bigger picture from those bits. And then get your colleagues to check it to make sure it's right and but present it to the public in, in that way. So, mm. and of course, people do say, well, he's not a, he's not a climatologist as if there's one climatologist type out there, but, you know, the book's actually about the science that's been done by all of these people. So it's a popular science effort in that regard. Um, and I, I'm not sure, I guess that perhaps there's there's an argument that that increasing specialisation has led to more scepticism, but I don't see an alternative for that. Um, in, in terms of the question that was asked about how we fund science, well I think Well, and really
0: gov- should governments set yeah, research the, agendas?
2: I, 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 I really don't agree that they should. I don't believe they should. Mm. I think that's politicised. Politici- Leads to an undesirable politicisation, and then uh, the 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 prospect that with every new government that agenda will change and we'll get real dislocation.
3: How about I mean, if you buy into the fact that climate change is real and that humans are a cause, I mean, don't you think that? transforming our energy sector is important? I mean, didn't, don't yeah, you think sure. at that level well, we can set that's,
2: priorities? Yeah, that's, a diff- that's not science, though, as such. That would be technology and deployment mm. and, you know, how you bring industries yeah. to scale. I mean, I think there's clearly a, a role for government in that. Um, but I... And, and then, you know, how do you... I, I'm not entirely sure how science sets its agenda for itself but mm. I have some sort of faith that it's, it's got the capacity to do that. Yeah. And I do think the lottery system is a good one. If the, we need to have a universal <laughs> threshold, you know, to so this is science and this isn't, let's do it on a, on a, on a lottery basis. Is this is, the you know. But then you, the, you might
0: not be allocating precious funding to mm. the most
1: strategic science for the time.
2: Yes, that's right. But that's assuming anyone knows what the most strategic science <laughs> is. And I, I don't, yeah. I'm not sure that we I, do. I
1: just just on, on a tiny thing just to add on, on to what Lee was saying about, I think government should direct some of it. it, it there's, again, there's not, there shouldn't be anything wrong with politicising some bits of science. It, politics is not something terrible... It is what the will of the certain population happens to be in, that, in those mm. few years. So, if, that, if, if your elected representatives think a certain thing is the way to go, then there's some value in that. I'm not saying it's always going to be exactly what you want to do. and um, the UK, certainly, has gone a bit too far, and a lot of the research money, which used to be directed by scientists themselves, uh, using their own committees, they decided what, where to fund uh, send it, has been hypothecated and sent towards mm. strategic aims, and a lot of complaints about that generally come from the people who suffered as a result, not from those mm. people who, in synthetic biology, have suddenly got a massive new centre. Or graphene, which we're so obsessed with now in our country, with no clear insight <laughs> as to what they're going to do with it. Yeah. And if you speak to the people in the graphene centre off the record, they'll say things like, we well, don't know what to do with this money either. Oh. Like, yeah. We've got 50 million quid, we've just built a nice new building. I'm not sure that... <laughs> <laughs> Whereas down the road, their chemist colleagues are like, we've, we've got to shut down now. We've got no, no reagents, nothing.
0: Thank you. Hi, thank you. Um, There was a lot of talk about um, that um, these days it seems like a lot of people don't really know what science really is. So there's lots of misperception in our society about science. What would you say could be done here? So in regards to the education system, what's your vision there? How should, let's say, the next generation of um, Australians
6: uh, perceive science in general? And also how can we prepare our children um, in this regard.
0: Thank you, let's come back to that. And so that's a great question about education and the role. Thank you.
6: Thank you. Thanks, Natasha. Um, My name is Susie. I run an organisation called Think Inc. and we tour some of the greatest public intellectuals of the world. Um, My question is in regards to creating scientists as pop culture icons. That's what we really try and do, to elevate them up to the level of, say, a rapper or a sports star, putting them in that kind of domain. Um, Can I get your two cents on if you think that scientists' as pop culture icons can help in bringing science to the masses and helping people think more scientifically? Mm, Good question.
1: All right, let's address those two. Well, I think you answered that question. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, I think you, you probably knew the answer to your own question there. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I think that, that, that there are many strands to answering the question over there. That's one of them. I think having scientists in the public doing all sorts of things from your David Attenboroughs to your Jane Goodalls to all those sorts of people, it, it humanises, to tell stories, and they end up being people you trust, whatever they say, which is for good or ill, but anyway, mm-hmm. you're up there. And the, if they talk about things changing or, or, or uh, evidence changing scientific ideas, you know, you sort of go, okay, I didn't know that. That's an interesting way of talking about it. Having more of that debate in public is a good idea. And it's, it's clearly good. important. It's important for us in media to do it. And then, and then, of course, the education part of it, I'll leave to you guys, but that's also got to be an important part of it. In science education, certainly. When I was at school, it was a set of facts. I didn't understand that, that science was something you could actually contribute to or oh. question until I was at university. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
3: yeah. Yeah. I think... I, I don't know. I'm just thinking about my Facebook wall, <laughs> and I'm thinking about like who posts the uh, popular celebrity science videos and who doesn't. And at least in my where I come from, that is a very partisan thing, right? So some people are going to be totally into the celebrity scientists. Those are going to be mostly people who are Democrats in the, mm-hmm. the United States, mm-hmm. and then other people aren't. So I, and this goes to the question, where'd, where'd you go? Right, education, yeah. Oh, there you are. All right. Um, so I'm, I, what I'm about to say is totally self-interested, and so therefore you shouldn't trust anything that's going to come out of my mouth. But I actually, <laughs> I actually think that you know, having more history, sociology, of science at a younger age in, for, for instance, high school curricula, so it's part of your history class or whatever, it can be part of that answer. Um, and it, it's not a partisan thing necessarily. It's just about trying to understand how science actually works. So you're, mm-hmm. you're having a realistic perspective. But then that would mean giving me research money mm-hmm. to like produce curricula for high schools. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I should say that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. Where are we? Oh, over here. Thank you. Uh,
3: I just know that at University of Sydney psychology
2: is actually classified as a science, so that's why I'm going to be able to bring it up under relevance, but
1: um, also touching on the whole high school education thing, first year psych is the most popular subject at university and I struggle to fathom why it's not introduced at a younger age. Mm. And I, I found myself quite good at maths, chemistry, physics, whatnot. And, realising why do I need to understand this whole logic and critical thinking thing for the first time as an adult, this mm. seems really like something that should be introduced mm. much earlier. Mm. Mm. Thoughts? Mm.
0: Yeah, great. Let's come back to that. Uh, yes, it's a, it's a good point and it's part of the kind of drive to have philosophy in schools too. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, thank you.
4: So so just a comment or, and a question about two of the words that have been used today. So one of them uh, is scepticism is um, and that seems to be used interchangeably with denialism and um, some asking whether you think we've got a problem with the language there. Mm. And the other word is uh, controversy. Is the fact that the world is spherical controversial? um, Is the fact that vaccines save lives and money, is that controversial? So at what point do we stop calling something a controversy and start calling it uh, you know, for what it really is.
0: Mm. Great. Thank you. And we've got one more, I think, behind you. Let's take them all, because we've just about got 20 minutes, 20 seconds left.
4: Uh, I, I wanted to make a number of comments about pseudoscience and the and social sciences and the impact uh, that, that uh, science sometimes, or trust that it gets in un, an unwarranted sense because of media exposure. We're, we're required to identify the impact before we carry out the research, and that leads to media exposure. Or the need for it, but the real question actually I wanted uh, both Lee and Natasha mentioned replication. I strongly believe there is insufficient weight given to replication in research generally mm-hmm. we've got peer, peer group uh, peer peer evaluation we've got checking checking isn't done anywhere near enough but but replication just has no cachet at all, no incentive and it, it should be part of the, the, the insurance against poor science. Yeah.
0: Thank you very much. So let's start with that if we want to, or wherever anyone wants well, to start on those three.
4: I, I couldn't agree more
2: with what you just said about replication. It's absolutely central to the whole enterprise. But just in terms of education, could I just say that the, the, we need to foster two very important things in young people if we want them to have a scientific career, I think, a, a sense of wonder and a, and a great capacity for imagination. If we do that, we can deal with the rest of it. So.
1: Um, Just on that replication, I agree with the philosophy uh, and the psychology being earlier I just think it's a great idea mm. um, again it's, it's a massive educational issue though isn't it uh, and on your point about replication and reputations as well because the thing is yes replication of studies which is supposedly an inherent part of the scientific process is just not done an- enough a recent project in the states to try and replicate 100 psychology studies only could replicate 40 of them uh, and so it shows that there's lots of weird not quite good stuff out there that, that if, it, if you can't replicate it so there are lots of ideas around this uh, one is every PhD student should replicate a study uh, as part of their training, right, which would be a useful thing, social capital, Um, uh, and and others, maybe maybe postdocs and things, as part of any research grant, you should replicate another study somewhere. Problem is, scientists are often their own worst enemies. All they want to do is find something new out to get their next research grant. Again, talking about the incentives, you have to persuade a scientist essentially, inverted commas, waste a bit of their own time to do it. It's incentives that drive all of this, and scientists have to be at the leading edge in saying no more. We want to do it this way. Good luck trying to persuade them because they've got so little money to to sort of waste around.
0: Yes. Now, what about the dichotomy that gets set up between you know denialism, scepticism, controversy, truth? The the comment there.
3: I do think that this is uh, a place that journalists often fall down. Um, because around issues that aren't very controversial amongst scientists, they treat them as public controversies, when you could just be talking about a very small group of people, and then if you give those that very small group of people equal weight on something that's global... Um, you can really magnify things in ways that aren't helpful. I totally agree. And
1: the fundamental mm. problem, that's a journalism problem, mm. which is based on the fact that all journalism reporting in the world is, uh, decide, has, is based around political reporting, which is the worst type of reporting there actually is. <laughs> so <laughs> let's just forget.
0: Yeah. <laughs> nothing
1: yeah. We can do. We, we try. I mean, certainly, as specialists, we try this all the time, pointing out that balance is not true, you know, that, that it's much more nuanced than this, and what you're saying is entirely correct. I'm yes, but do you think that
0: the media is a great source of distrust in science right Of course, now.
1: I think it is. But it also is the media pr- is, is it the primary source? Uh, I don't know if it's the primary source, but it certainly is a big factor in not correcting things and making things worse. Having said that, there's lots of good things out there too. So it's a little bit of a... Mm. Mm. It's, it's a bit of a difficult one. And the media itself, <laughs> different conversation, ha- has even less money than science, and it's doing really badly everywhere. And so it has that,
3: even more uh, in messed up incentives uh, uh, than science. Yeah, than and
1: hugely bad incentives. And so, you know... The, the people who try and actually fix any of this stuff, it's, it's a vanishing majority, minority really. Do you know, we scientists are so careful
2: with their <laughs> words, you know, but the public doesn't always appreciate it. I remember once I gave a talk a bit like this and was talking about falsifying my hypothesis and someone came up to me afterwards and said, were you really trying to make your hypothesis false? Were you trying to...? <laughs> <laughs> it was like, where do I start? <laughs> I
1: don't know. Where do we
0: start? Well, we've made a good start today. <laughs> Can <laughs> we thank Alok <Alec> Jha, <laughs> Tim Flannery. Leave Thank you. If you enjoyed that talk, please subscribe to our iTunes channel for our fortnightly podcast.